morning, church. My name is Addison. I'm the director of student ministry, and it is an honor to be up here to preach God's word to you this morning. But before we get into that, I just want to say happy 4th of July. I hope you enjoy an afternoon of smoking meats and blowing up stuff. Um, I will say this, your 4th of July will not get better than mine. And it's not, and you're probably thinking, oh, it's probably because you have the opportunity to preach, which is, it's a good guess. But in reality, it's because I'm married to Camille. You know, give everybody a wave, Camille. She's probably really embarrassed. So my wife, we all have this inner child in us that I think as we grow up, we start to suppress more and more, but certain things bring it out. And for my wife, it is fireworks. And so literally, if you have ever, like, that's probably, you probably have not watched fireworks with us, but if you ever have the opportunity to come with us to a fireworks show, I promise you, you will not be looking at the fireworks. You'll be looking at my wife's face because it's just pure joy. And so that's what I get to, to live with and it's a blessing. And so tonight, as y'all uh, celebrate fireworks and all those fun things, I'm going to be just looking at the pure joy on my wife's face of seeing her inner child come out. And so... Uh, this morning, guys, we're going to be in 2 Timothy, which is Paul's last letter uh, that he wrote. Um, and I think all of us here would agree that last words are significant. You see, when somebody is approaching the end of their life, they start to make their words more intentional. There's more weight behind what they're saying because they know that the end is near, whether that's death or maybe somebody is moving away and they know they're not gonna see this group of people anymore. So they want to communicate what is most valuable to them, to the people that they love the most. We see this all the times in movies and in TV shows. When you're watching a movie, the pace starts to slow down and the, the zoom starts to go and it starts to focus on the main character and all of the background starts to fade away because the director of the show wants you to know and feel and hear every word that this character says because it's going to be his last. And so in a similar way, this is what Paul is doing for us here. You see, at this point in Paul's life, his he is at the end of his life. He only has a short amount of time left to live. At this point, if you read through the book of 2 Timothy in its entirety, you will see that Paul is in chains in a cold Roman prison. That he is dressed as a criminal, that the people that he's cared about most have abandoned him, and he has already experienced a preliminary trial, and it doesn't look it doesn't look great that he is actually going to be acquitted. And so death is all but inevitable for Paul. He's sitting in this Roman prison. At any moment, a guard could walk in and drag him out and to be executed for his faith. And so with death clearly on the horizon for Paul, Paul pins his last letter to his closest companion, Timothy. And in this letter, Paul is essentially passing the baton of gospel ministry to his friend, to his colleague, to his companion, Timothy. A baton of saying, what I have started, you will now finish. You are called to preserve the gospel and to spread it to all people. But as Paul writes this letter, there's one question that seems to come up into his mind, and it's because his death is imminent. It's what will happen 
to the gospel when I'm gone. You see, it's no secret that our culture is growing more and more resilient and hostile to the gospel every day. There seems to be new threats that come to uh, attack the gospel. There seems to be a higher cost of being a Christian in our society than it maybe was 10 to 15 years ago. And while Paul awaits his execution in a Roman prison, he is acutely aware of the culture around him that is over the landscape of his churches and Christianity. You see, the emperor at the time, Emperor Nero, was hell-bent on destroying the church and stopping his spread. So you had a political power that was persecuting the church, trying to stop his spread. But then in all the churches that Paul planted, you see false teachers and heretics arising within the church, deceiving God's people from truth. And then even on a personal note, we see many people that Paul has loved and given his life to now turn his back on Paul and leave him deserted in a Roman prison. The church as a whole was experiencing intense persecution from the outside, a rise of false teachers on the inside and an overwhelming growing hostility to its message. And so it's not an exaggeration to say that Paul was looking back at the 30 years of his ministry where he laid the groundwork for the church and was probably worried about what the next step would be. A church historian talking about this time said, Christianity trembled, humanly speaking, on the verge of annihilation. And so the future of the church did not look promising. Paul, it, their faithful leader, is now on his deathbed. And Paul has finished his life, his, his race, and he's looking to pass this baton to the next person. And as he's doing that, he's trusting the gospel to Timothy and the people that Timothy would then pass the gospel on to, to guard it, but also to spread it. And so it was a daunting task then to step into a culture that was so hostile to the gospel. And it's a daunting task today that we as a church step into. People often say we are one generation from losing the gospel. <clears throat> and if you're anything like me, you can look across the landscape of our churches in the future and you can grow anxious and worried about what the future holds of what the church will look like in years to come because of the growing hostility to the message, the decreasing numbers of people in the next generation trusting in Jesus and just the overall growing cost of what it means to live faithfully as a Christian in today's world. <clears throat> and so given this circumstance, the question we have is what do we do? And this is what Paul's letter to Timothy is going to answer for us. In this letter, Paul is going to identify what I believe is one of the greatest temptations that you and I face on a daily basis. It's a temptation that you're probably gonna face as you step out of church this morning. Maybe you face it before you got to church this morning. And what he's going to do, he's gonna identify this temptation for us and then he's gonna set out to encourage us and provide us a strong foundation for how we can overcome this temptation and to step into what God might have for you in your life. So if you have your Bibles, we're gonna be in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. Um, but before we dive in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you that it has been preserved for us, that it has been passed down to us. 
um, and that it is living and active. God, I pray for each person here this morning that you would give them ears to hear and, and a heart to receive your word this morning, that you would shape us, that you would encourage us, and that you would challenge us to live more faithfully to what you have called us to do because of your word here. And so, God, I, I just pray that over the next 30 minutes, God, that we will be challenged, that we will encounter your spirit um, in a unique way. We pray for all these things in Christ's name. So verse eight says this, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You see, one of the greatest temptations that you and I face on a daily basis is to shrink back from what God has called us to do because of fear. Paul recognizes this temptation in Timothy who is known for being timid. And he calls Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel. He, noted, he points out two specific things. He points out, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Like I said, one of the greatest temptations that you and I face daily is to be ashamed of the gospel message that has saved us and of the people that we belong to. It's one of the greatest and most effective tactics that the adversary uses against us to prevent us from stepping in to what God might have us is this crippling fear. As Christians, we live in a culture where our message is foolish, where our beliefs are labeled as bigoted, where there's a growing consensus right now that to share your faith or to maybe persuade someone to believe something else is now offensive and intolerant. And my fear is that church, as we listen to these voices in the culture, we are going to be overcome by fear and to step back and shrink back from what God has called us to do. And as we listen to these voices, we start to drown out the voice of the spirit in our heart and our mind that tells us that the gospel is good news. And as a result, we shrink back from the task because of fear. We are more captivated by the message of the culture than we are by the message of the word. Or maybe for you today, maybe, you're, maybe you and Jesus are cool. Maybe you and the Bible don't have any problems. Maybe it's not the message. But for some reason, you just find yourself trying to like stiff arm God's people. Like you just wanna distance yourself. You wanna, in every conversation, you wanna try to communicate to somebody that, oh, I'm not like those Christians, I'm not like this. You're trying to already put distance between you and God's people. And Paul knows that this is what Timothy is experiencing. Timothy is seeing the man who has fathered him in the faith suffer in a Roman prison for championing this message. How do you think that makes Timothy feel? Paul, from a, just from a humanly perspective, Paul looks like, an absolute failure. He is chained. He cannot go out and do what God has called him to do. This gospel has only brought him suffering and difficulty and chains in life. And as Timothy, when you see your mentor in the faith be imprisoned and to suffer as he did, you, you might start to try to separate yourself from that man. And we've all felt this at some point for a variety of reasons. 
we have all tried to distance ourselves from the message of the gospel or God's people. This, I have thousands of stories about this in my own life, but one particular story was last month. Um, so Camille and I, we went on a, a very big vacation. It was, it was a really fun time, and it was to celebrate my graduation from seminary. So we've been married for three and a half years, and we have never known a day with me not being in school full-time and working full-time. And so it was like, we need to celebrate this big accomplishment and to go out because in reality, it was much of an accomplishment for Camille as it is for me because she suffered so much, not suffered, she, she uh, gave up so much in order for, for me to complete this degree. And so we go on this big vacation we, and we're there and um, people, we start interacting with people that are at the same place we are and they come up to us. You know, you get the normal questions. I don't know, where are you from? Uh, how old are you? Things like that. And we had the same question come up multiple times, like, oh, what's the occasion for you going on this trip? Simple enough question, you know, you, we should have expected that. But for whatever reason, in those moments, Camille and I were just, in some ways, overwhelmed with a, a bit of fear or shame that we didn't want to answer that, oh, I just graduated from seminary and I, I work for a church. You know, we're in line with these people and it's like, that's gonna get awkward if they don't like that. And we're gonna just sit here and wait for food for 10 minutes and just have an awkward silence. But in reality, we hesitated to speak to the very thing that has changed our lives and the very thing that could change their lives as well because we believe this idea that we should have been ashamed of this message and what God has done in our life and what he has called us to do. And there are a thousand other circumstances in our life where we have probably shrunk back instead of stepped into those opportunities. And if we're being honest, a lot of our fear comes back to a worship of self and comfort. We don't want to feel uncomfortable. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to lose the client or the friend. We don't wanna cause family tension or drama. And Paul recognizes that this is the primary reason why we lived unashamed or why we live ashamed of the gospel. But instead of shrinking back from fear, Paul actually uh, encourages Timothy to step into the suffering that comes with the gospel. He's saying, Timothy, don't avoid the suffering. Don't step around the difficulties that come from faithfully embracing the the gospel message in your life. He says to step into the suffering that comes from being a faithful follower of Jesus. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is not the advice that we were hoping to hear. If I was in Timothy's shoes, I would have hoped to hear, Timothy, it's okay, what's happening to me is just unique. You know, as the years go on, more more people are gonna really love this message and it's not gonna demand so much of you. But Paul doesn't shrink back. He doesn't apologize that it gets hard, but instead he encourages Timothy to step into the very suffering that he is experiencing. He's calling Timothy to champion the gospel that put him on death row. You see, a lot of us here, we're, a lot of us here love Pauline teaching. We love Pauline beliefs. We love Pauline doctrine. But a lot of us 
aren't too willing to suffer Pauline pain. You can't have one or the other. If you embrace Pauline teaching, it's going to lead you in to the pain of what it means to be a Christian in a culture that doesn't want you to be. And so at the end of this verse, we start to get a glimpse of confidence that Paul provides for us. He says, but, suffer, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You see, Paul doesn't leave us on an island to endure by ourselves because honestly, if we were on an island by ourselves, if we had to endure difficulty by ourselves, we would tap out as soon as it got difficult. But he says to Timothy, and he reminds us as well that Christians suffer differently. We endure differently. We endure by the power of God. And it's this very power of God that becomes the foundation for you and me of how we can step into what God has called us to do despite the consequences. And it's this power of God that uh, Paul is going to walk us through in the next few verses to Timothy. So the next few verses, Paul is going to give us a lot of theology. There's a lot of big terms in here. And we're not gonna dive super deep into them because this message for Paul is, and Paul's theology in this section is extremely practical. And so we wanna take these truths, but also look at how do these truths enable us and empower us to live faithfully to Christ. And so verse nine, he says, well, I'll back up in the second half of verse eight. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And you see in these verses, what Paul is doing, he is systematically pulling Timothy's eyes off of himself and his circumstances on to God and his work. One of the first thing Paul wants to remind Timothy of is his own salvation. He wants Timothy to call to mind the God who has saved him and the God who has called him. Because you see our temptation when we're facing a daunting task like Timothy is to be self-focused. We focus a lot on ourselves. And then what happens is we go down this path of disqualification to where, you know, I'm not equipped anymore. I didn't, you know, I don't have a seminary degree, so I'm not gonna really answer some of these objections to the gospel. You know, I'm, I'm more of a behind the scenes kind of person, so I don't really need to step into some of these difficult conversations. And what happens is you get so focused on yourself and your inability that you forget to remember the God who has saved you and the God that has called you. And so what Paul, Paul doesn't want Timothy to focus on himself. He wants to move his eyes from himself onto God. Because you see, Paul never gets over his testimony. And we shouldn't either. Church, we should never get over the fact that God has graciously saved us. We should never get over that. That while we were still dead, in sin that Christ rescued us and saved us. And it's only when we remember that truth that we can actually have a firm foundation to stand on, to step into what God has called us to. We need to be reminded of this power 
this gospel power daily to be ambassadors of reconciliation as God has called us to be. But Paul doesn't want you just to remember your testimony. He wants to get particular about the gospel. That's what he does in this passage. Its source is not in our works or our ability. Its source is in the infinitely holy God who before the ages began called us because of his own purpose and grace and saved us through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Think about, ponder that thought for a second, that before God even created the heavens and the earth, before he created you and me, before we ever committed an act of disobedience or obedience, that God chose you. He didn't choose you because you were worthy of being saved. He chose you because of his own good purpose and grace. And if you wanted to trace this river of salvation back to its source, you'd have to point it back to where God existed entirely by himself in a past eternity. And we don't have time to get into the weeds and necessarily the doctrine of election, but I do wanna say this, that the doctrine of election in scripture is never introduced in order to confuse you or to arouse you. It's always introduced with a practical purpose. You see, it does, it does many things, but two things here it does. The doctrine of election should produce in you a deep humility and gratitude for God because you realize how unworthy you are of his salvation and how gracious he is to give it. On the other hand, it should provide believers with peace and assurance when we are fearful. Guys, nothing can quiet your fears like, no, like the knowledge of knowing that our safety and security depends ultimately not on ourselves, but on God's own purpose and grace. And so God's election here provides us with peace in the midst of uncertainty and difficulty. But guys, this doctrine also provides you and me with assurance that the gospel works and that those who have yet to believe will believe. You see, God's election is proof that the gospel works, that people come to faith. Look, guys, you are here this morning because God came to get you by sending somebody to you. God saves his elect by sending people who are unashamed of the gospel to them to proclaim the gospel to them so that faith would be awakened in their heart so that God might draw them to himself. So why does this give us confidence in sharing the gospel? It gives us confidence because we recognize that they are out there. We believe that God is calling people to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so when we go out to share the good news of the gospel, we are not placing our confidence in our ability to articulate the gospel well or our ability to counteract objections to the gospel. We are placing our confidence solely in the fact that God has the power to save his elect. Jesus did not die for those who might believe. Jesus died for those who will believe. And it is this security and this foundation that should give us the greatest confidence as we step into evangelism. 
that the power of the gospel is placed solely on the shoulders of an all-powerful and holy God. And with, when, it, when it's not on your shoulders, that frees you up, church, to confidently step into those conversations knowing that God has the power to save. But not only did God save us before the ages began, he also defeated our greatest enemy. Look at verse 10. I'll back it up a little bit too. Verse nine, I'll read that again. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God has decisively defeated all of our enemies that matter. We are freed from sin, death, and Satan because of what Jesus has accomplished. And if we are ever going to step in and operate in a culture that doesn't want us to be faithful with the gospel, we need to remember that our greatest enemy has been defeated. Paul tells us that Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And guys, and to, to really appreciate this statement, we need to take a step back and remember who it is is making this statement. Who is it that writes so confidently about life and death? But Paul, who is facing imminent death in prison. It is the one who is facing imminent death himself. This is Paul's hope and it is ours as well. Guys, there is nothing more freeing than knowing that for the Christian, death is gain. If Christ has abolished death, then what can somebody do to you? Make fun of you? ridicule you, embarrass you? Is this what we are unwilling to take in order for someone to hear the good news of the gospel? Because Christ has conquered the grave, you and I have hope that suffering, ridicule, embarrassment, poverty, and death do not have the last word. Just think for a second, 10,000 years from now, when we are enjoying God for all eternity, it is, you are not going to care about what it costs you in order to get the gospel to someone else. It won't. Because you will be enjoying forever the presence of your heavenly father who chose you before the ages began and who has graciously saved you and called you. So after laying out this source of his confidence, Paul now transitions to the duty and task set before him in Timothy. Look at verse 11. He says, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. So if life and immortality is found in Jesus's death and resurrection, and this is offered. And so if this is true, that we can find life and life eternal in Jesus Christ, then it's pretty imperative that you and I would go out and tell people about this. 
And Paul, and this is exactly what Paul does. He says that his, he was appointed for this task. And he was appointed to three offices, an apostle, a preacher, and a teacher. So apostles are those who received God's message and passed it down. A, a preacher is someone who proclaims the gospel. And a teacher, just and these are short descriptions, is someone who takes the gospel and instructs people about how it works in their life, the implications of the gospel working out in their lives. And so there are no apostles today. There's no apostles of Christ today. We have our, there's no new revelation. We have received revelation. It's been preserved and given to the church. So there are two tasks left, which is to preach the gospel and teach people the gospel. And now you might say, I'm not called to be a preacher in the official sense of like what's happening here. But guys, we are all called by the great commission to go and make disciples of all people and to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. So this is our task. And it's this very task that was the result of Paul's suffering. Look at verse 12. He says, for which is why, which is why I suffer as I do. Paul is able to interpret his suffering theologically. The reason Paul was willing to lay his life down for the, the sake of the mission and the gospel is because he believed that the gospel was worth it. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the gospel is worth enduring hardships for so that someone else might hear and respond to the name of Jesus? Or do you believe Christianity is some, you know, cultural movement that helps teach morality or traditional values to your children? Or is the gospel, as Paul says in Romans, the power of God for salvation for whoever believes? Because if this is true, that if the gospel has the power to save, then every difficulty and suffering that you and I encounter on our way to getting the gospel to someone else is worth it. But if it's just a helpful message that helps people live better lives, then why should you or I ever experience suffering or step into suffering for it? Despite suffering for the gospel, Paul says here, but I am not ashamed. Why? In one of the most powerful verses in this whole section, he says, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. Paul's theology is deeply personal and practical here. He has a personal relationship with the God who has saved him and has called him. And this is Paul's hope in the midst of suffering that there is a God that knows him and loves him and is with him. Church, if you step out in boldness this week to share the gospel with someone, one thing you need to know is whom you have believed in. You need to remember that God is able to guard you when you are unable to guard yourself. You need to remember, you need to remind yourself of the faithfulness of God and reflect on who he is. We need to remember that even if we feel unable and ill-equipped, God is able. We need to remember in whom we have believed in 
lest we start believing in me. God is able, he has no rival. God is not in heaven right now anxiously watching the world and is, he's not worried about the light of the gospel going out. Because it's ultimately God who preserves and guards the gospel and ensures that it's passed to the next generation. So even if we look like failures, even if it looks like the gospel light is going out, it will never go out because God is the one who is able to guard it. It says, I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. So Christian, when you are fearful of rejection, of sharing the gospel, the reason is because there's too much of you in that equation. We need to move our eyes from ourselves and on to the God who is able. Even if you receive rejection, even if you look like an idiot, God is able. And so now he is transitioning now to our duty in verses 13 through 14. And it's only when we're able to move our eyes off of ourselves that we can actually fulfill the task that God has given us. So he says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So how are you and I supposed to guard the gospel? The first thing that Paul tells us to do is to follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. You see, Paul's teaching becomes the outline or the rule for us. We must not depart from his teaching. Our role is not to create new teaching that fits the times and is more culturally acceptable. Our job is to preserve, to amplify, expound, and apply God's word that he's given us to through the apostles. If you have time this week, go back and read Galatians, which is Paul's first letter, and notice how identical and similar his gospel message is from his first letter to now 2 Timothy, his second letter. Despite the difficulties that Paul has experienced in his life and suffering, there is one thing he did not waver on and that was the content and the source of the gospel. We all feel the pressure at times, if we're honest, to change the gospel in order to make it more effective for someone to hear and believe in it. Too often well-meaning Christians as a result of a desire for the church to reach the next generation, start to water down and pull parts of the gospel out in order to make it more attractive. But in reality, they're left with a watered down gospel that cannot save someone from their sins. And so Timothy certainly felt this temptation, I'm sure. From a human perspective, it doesn't look like Paul's gospel has worked. He looks like a failure. Paul's gospel has led him to being imprisoned on death row. And so Timothy's probably tempted of, man, I, sh I might should change this a little bit in order to save my skin. Or maybe, this, I mean, if this is where the, believing the gospel takes you, nobody's gonna wanna trust in Jesus if, it's, if you're gonna end up in a prison. But guys, Paul wants Timothy 
to not change this message and he wants us never to change it as well. Even when it looks like it is not working, do not move from it. So Christian, do not drift from what is true. No matter how hard culture pulls you in the other direction, stand firm on what you believe to be true. So how do we do this? How do we guard the gospel? One of the ways that we guard the gospel is to know the gospel. Does anybody know what the role of the secret service is? It's to protect, if, you're, if you said protect the president, you would be correct. But that's not all that the secret service does. The secret service also has a role to identify and find counterfeit money, counterfeit currency. And so if you were to ask me, how do they train a secret service individual to identify something that's counterfeit? I probably would have guessed that they would just study and look at all the different distortions of money that they could get their hands on. But in reality, what they do is they only study the original. They put it in their hands, they feel the texture of it, they look at all the intentional details of it. They, they recognize the weight, the smell, the texture, everything about this original dollar bill. They learn it inside and out. So that when a counterfeit comes, they know that it's off. They might not be able to identify what exactly is off about it, but they know that it is a counterfeit bill because it doesn't fit the original. And this is the same way that we must do. We must become active learners of the gospel. You and I never outgrow our need for the gospel. We, the, we can never even search the depths of the gospel in this lifetime, but we should at least try. And so as Paul closes, he wants to remind Timothy again of who is ultimately in control and who ultimately guards the gospel. And it is by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So it's God who ultimately guards the gospel. We can only do it through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. God is the guardian. He is not gonna let his gospel light flame out. He is able when we are not, and it's only when our eyes are locked on him that we are able to overcome the fear of what it takes to step into what God is calling us. And I'm reminded of this truth kind of weirdly every time I go to a community pool and so, especially a community pool with young children. And so, one of the things that I like to do, I like to people watch. Call me a creep if you want. I'm a people watcher. It's a, it, very entertaining for me just to like sit back and just watch what everybody is doing. And when I'm at a pool, what's so interesting, there's always one child who is learning how to jump into the deep end for the first time. And this child has already swam in the shallow end. He knows how to swim. He's got all the training he needed and he's decked out with these floaties. Like he has the life jacket. He's got the floaty that looks like a tutu. He's got the ones on his arms. Like there's a 0% chance that this child will drown. But you see this child go up to the edge and he's walking and he backs up from it. He tests the water and it's, he's just overwhelmed and paralyzed by the fear of jumping. And he stays that way until one thing happens, until mom or dad gets into the pool. And mom and dad swims up to the edge where the child is scared 
and frightened about jumping and puts out their arms and encourages this child to jump. And in that moment, the child is no longer focused on his surroundings or what, how cold the water is or whatever. He is focused and he's gaining his confidence because he knows that when I jump, my dad will catch me and he will protect me and he will guard me. And in a similar way, this is what happens for us. A lot of us are on the cusp of gospel conversations and we start to get fearful, right? We start to test the water, we walk around the edge and it's something that my, my evangelism professor called the five seconds of insanity. It's that five seconds where your heart starts to beat uncontrollably, where you start to black out a little bit and your, your knees get weak and you're like, oh, this is, this is about to happen. You're like, I'm about to, to introduce the name of Jesus in this conversation. And you just start to, to black out and become fearful and you wanna step away from that edge. But church, in those moments, when we start to become overwhelmed by fear and anxiety, we need to see the face and hear the voice of the one in whom we have believed in. And we need to remember that he is able to keep us, that his gospel has the power to save. And as you move your eyes off of yourself in those moments, you are freed up to step into what God has called you to do. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that despite our weaknesses, God, you are able, that despite our inability and despite our fear in the moments that we can feel ashamed of the gospel message or its people, God, that you have proven time and time again that you are faithful, that you can be trusted that you, like a good father, will catch us and guard us as we step into what you have called us to do. And so God, I pray that just even this week, as our church scatters throughout their community, as they go to Fourth of July parties, as they experience vacation, that you will remind them of yourself, that you are a God that has saved them and has called them and out of that confidence of knowing you that they will step in without fear to the conversations that you have called them to partake and be a gospel witness in. So strengthen us by your grace and your word. We pray all these things in Christ Jesus, amen.